You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. goes down to Egypt. He gets thrown out of Egypt. He realizes, I believe he's made a mistake. He builds an altar to the Lord. He worships the Lord and he seeks the Lord and he learns. He would make more mistakes, but he would get up from those mistakes and he would again seek the Lord. And Abram would end up at the end of his journey of faith like Peter, a rock for God. Lot would end the journey of faith in shame, in loss, and I think in bitterness of soul. In today's message, you'll hear how Lot made a poor choice to live where the grass looked greener. The difference between Abram and Lot was a matter of humility. Abram learned from his mistakes, but Lot based his decisions on how he felt. In today's message, Pastor Danny will expand on the differences between these two people from the scriptures and what we can learn from them. Have you put all your trust in God or are you pursuing your own desires like Lot? Now here's Pastor Danny in the book of Genesis chapter 13 as he continues his message, Two Believers on Different Paths. Abram now, I think, humbled because of the mistakes down south. Now, with fresh faith, he says to Lot, in a humble state, full of faith, you choose. Whichever way you go, I'll go the other way. And not only does Lot make a bad choice, Abraham makes the choice of faith, but now God reminds Abram, look, what I'm giving you is far better than anything, anything this world has to offer. Verse 15, all the land that you see I'll give to you and your offspring forever. I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. That's a lot of kids. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. Note this, so Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord. Good move, Abram. Good move. Chapter 14, I hope you're with me. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasser, Kedralamer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemim, that guy, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, all these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. For 12 years they had been subject to Kedralamer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. 
In the 14th year, Kedolamer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzites and Ham, the Emites and Shava, Kiriath, uh, there, yeah, those places, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Malachites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazar and Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Siddim against Kedralamer, Tidal, Amraphel, and Arioch, four kings against five. Stop there just a minute. We gave you something I think is interesting. Some of the names of these kings, Amraphel means sayer of darkness. Bera means son of evil. Bersha means with iniquity. The point, these are pagan kings. These are enemy kings of God and the people of God, like Abram, like Lot. This is the enemy. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions. Catch this statement. Since he was living in Sodom. The verse we read just a few minutes ago, he goes south or he goes toward where the grass is greener and he pitches his tents near Sodom. But he's not in Sodom. He's not living in Sodom. He's just close to Sodom. Now he has a home in Sodom. He's living in Sodom. And because he has chosen to make his dwelling in Sodom, he ends up taken captive by the enemy. Quick, needed reminder. Peter writes and he says, Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion and he's roaming throughout the earth, seeking someone to devour. I need to remind us, including myself, he's not trying or seeking to devour someone who's not a believer, someone who's not on a journey of faith. He's already got them. He's already got them. He's seeking to devour you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He's seeking to devour me as a believer in Jesus Christ. He's seeking to take you captive or me captive. And we're capable of being taken captive if we make the foolish mistakes. that put us in that position to be taken captive. Verse 13, one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eskel and Aner, and all of them were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and he went and pursued as far as Dan. That's north. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hoba, north of Damascus. That's further north. He recovered all the goods. He brought back his relative lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. I could do a whole message on this, but look, you know what our business is? Our business is to free the captives in the name of the Lord. I mean, those who are captive to the enemy that have never given their lives to Jesus Christ and those that are captive to the enemy that are already 
that already belong to Christ. But I can't get off on that whole message right now. Let me just say, though, Ephesians 6, verses 17 and 18, in that whole list in Ephesians 6, after beginning, reminding us that it is a spiritual battle, a spiritual battle, and our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, then it lists all those wonderful pieces of armor, spiritual armor that God gives us. And the last one listed, you know what it is? And pray on all occasions. Pray, pray. Listen, want to see somebody delivered? We better be praying for them. Want to see a believer delivered that's been taken captive? We better be praying for them. The victory Abram and these men get over these kings and their armies is absolutely supernatural. He's got himself and 318 men against four kings and all their armies. This is a supernatural victory. And I remind us again, we need to pray because without the Lord... We need the Lord. We need the Lord to move. He needs to move on our behalf. We need to go after him. We need to share with him, whatever. But it's going to be the Lord that brings the deliverance. Amen? Amen. It's the Lord. And he brings the deliverance about here. Verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Kedralamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. That's very interesting to me. First one that comes out to meet him after the victory is the king of Sodom. I wonder what he wants. Before we get to what he wants, verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. One of the first things Melchizedek, this mysterious figure, does is remind Abram and those with him this victory was supernatural. God gave you the victory. He's king of Salem, so he's king of peace. And he's priest of God most high. Now remember, under the law of Moses, one person could not be a priest and a king. It was forbidden. That's why when Uzziah the king in 2 Chronicles 26 uh, went into the temple and and with his censer was going to offer incense in the temple before the Lord, that was only reserved for the priest, and that's why God judged him. So this is an interesting figure because he's a priest and he's a king. Priest and a king. King of peace, priest of God most high. He blesses Abram. And he brings out bread and wine. Listen to this. He desires fellowship with Abram, and he desires Abram to have fellowship with him. That's what the bread and wine are for. The Old Testament saints didn't have the revelation that we have. We know exactly what the bread and wine signify. We know exactly what it signifies. It's the sacrifice that makes the fellowship possible. Some say he's a type of Christ. I believe he's actually pre-incarnate Christ. But either way, that's who he represents. This is Christ. This is Christ. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. As one of my verses that I believe strongly because of this verse in the tithe, I believe the tithe is the basic standard, not going to get off on that, but uh, this is not a command. This is not law. Uh, Melchizedek didn't ask for it. Abram just offers it. He acknowledges because the tithe in in that culture, they would have understood. The tithe represents all of it. I honor you with the tenth because you're the one. It's because of you we got the victory. 
And now the king of Sodom. What did he want? Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people. Keep the goods for yourself. That gives us a clue to who he is, or at least who he represents. Give me the people. You take the spoils. What was it that Lucifer, in one of the things he said in tempting Jesus Christ, what did he say? Showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he said, all you got to do is bow down to me, and I'll give all this to you. Hey, you want some stuff? You want some glory? Here it is. That's what the king of Sodom is saying to Abram. You give me the people. You take all, take all the stuff. It's yours. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've raised my hand to the Lord God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. Ainer, Eskel, Mamre, let them have their share. But I'm not making any kind of deal with you or have any kind of dealings with you. There's no relation between me and you. And I think we know who the king of Sodom represents. He wants the people. You know what I never really thought about deeply until today? I love it that the word is never, ne it's, it's always fresh. And there's always something God can pull out until, hey, let me give you something fresh here. He gave me something fresh. I never thought deeply about who's in that crowd that just got rescued that the king of Sodom wants. It's Lot. Did you catch that? Lot. Give me the people. And one of those people in that group who's living in Sodom and the king of Sodom says, give me the people. And Lot was one of those people. And I didn't get that out of a commentary. The king of Sodom still wants Lot back in Sodom. Six minutes. Listen. Listen to this. You get to Genesis chapter 19. God sends two angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's going to rain down fire and brimstone. Abram has prayed to the Lord because he knows Lot's living in Sodom. He's interceded for Lot. Lord, if there's 50 righteous there, will you destroy it? No, I won't. If, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? Okay, if there's 10 righteous there, I won't destroy it. Well, unfortunately, there's not 10 righteous there's Lot. Now, interesting New Testament. Peter writes, and he tells us that Lot was a righteous man. He's in heaven. But he's a man like Abram who made mistakes, but unlike Abram, he didn't learn from his mistakes. That's the difference between he and his uncle. He didn't learn. Abram goes down to Egypt. He gets thrown out of Egypt. He realizes, I believe he's made a mistake. He builds an altar to the Lord. He worships the Lord, and he seeks the Lord, and he learns. He would make more mistakes, but he would get up from those mistakes, and he would again seek the Lord. And Abram would end up, at the end of his journey of faith, like Peter, a rock for God. Lot would end the journey of faith in shame, in loss, and I think in bitterness of soul. 
Let me just read you verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels arrived in Sodom in the, at Sodom in the evening, and Lot, Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. He willingly, he willingly went back to Sodom and picked up life where he had left off before he was taken into captivity by the enemy. Now when the angels tell him, go warn anybody, your family, you warn your family, he goes to warn his sons-in-law, <laughs> they think he's joking. Judgment's coming. They laugh at him. When the angels grab he and his wife and his two daughters to pull them out of there, it says they grabbed them, but it's after Lot hesitated. He hesitated. Why does he hesitate? Because his spiritual state. That's why he hesitated. He knows the Lord, but he's dwelling in Sodom, and he's at very best lukewarm. Peter tells us he hated the unrighteous deeds that he witnessed every day, and yet, 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 if I read it, the way I think it should be read. You'd read all the story. He was a compromising believer. Compromising. Because he was compromising, that's why he ended up taken captive the first time. And then God, through his uncle Abram and the others, rescued him. But instead of him leaving Sodom, going back to the faith life in a tent, he went right back, right back to Sodom. He hesitates in leaving when the angels warn him. Angels grab his hand and his wife's hand and his daughter's hands and they go out and then they say, run to the mountains and don't look back. Don't look back. You flee and you don't look back. And somewhere along the way, Lot's wife looked back. And Jesus, in Luke's gospel, chapter 17, talking about the time of the end, the time of the end, he says it was the same in Noah's day as in the days of Lot, People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It'll be just like this, just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who was on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. And then he throws in this. He just throws it in. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. She looked back, and she turned into a pillar of salt. I'd call that judgment, which tells us where her heart was. Her heart was in Sodom. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I, I, I think it's likely, it's likely that the very thing that initially drew Lot to Sodom was her. I don't know that. doesn't say that, but let's just say that's what happened. Something drew in there. Something was attractive. First, it was just the physical beauty, the physical attraction. And then he ends up there. And even after being taken captive by the enemy, when he gets delivered and he has the opportunity to leave Sodom, he doesn't leave Sodom. What's holding him there? I think it was her. It was certainly something. He might have met her there. She could have been an unbeliever. Don't know. But certainly a lot of possibilities. Something drew him there. Something led him back there after he experienced freedom from captivity on the journey of faith. And then if you read the end of the story, it's not a happy ending. His daughters have an incestuous relationship with their dad. 
The product of that is the Moabites and the Ammonites who became bitter enemies of the people of God. It's a sad, sad ending. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, there are some that will make it to heaven basically by the skin of their teeth. There's one escaping through the flames. You don't want to get there that way. Lot made it. Lot made it. But I think he's one of those guys who just made it by the skin of his teeth. And he didn't, I don't think he heard a well done, good and faithful servant. 1945 was an unbelievable year for rookie evangelists. In that year, 27-year-old Billy Graham came storming out of, a seemingly, out of seemingly nowhere to fill auditoriums across America, speaking to as many as 30,000 people a night. Graham was hired as the first full-time evangelist for Youth for Christ, and his reputation as a uniquely gifted preacher roared across America like a prairie fire. The rest, of course, is history. You've heard of Billy Graham, at least I think most of us have, but... Have you heard of a guy named Chuck Templeton? Anybody? A few. Or Bron Clifford? Nobody. Templeton and Graham were friends. Both ministered for Youth for Christ. Both were extraordinary preachers. Yet in those early years, most observers would put their money on Templeton. As a matter of fact, in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published an article on men who were best used of God in that organization's five-year existence. The article highlighted the ministry of Chuck Templeton. Billy Graham was never mentioned. Templeton, many felt, would be the next Babe Ruth of evangelism. Bron Clifford, uh, another gifted 25-year-old fireball, 1945, many believed Clifford the most gifted and powerful preacher the church had seen in centuries. At the age of 25, Clifford touched more lives, influenced more leaders, and set more attendance records than any other clergyman his age in American history. National leaders vied for his attention. He was tall, handsome, intelligent, and eloquent. It seemed as if he had everything. 1945, all three of these men came out of the blocks like rockets. Five years later, Templeton left the ministry. He had decided he was no longer a believer in Christ in the orthodox sense of the term. By 1950, this future Babe Ruth wasn't even in the game and no longer believed in the validity of the claims of Jesus Christ. 1954, Clifford had lost his family, his ministry, his health, and then his life. Alcohol and financial irresponsibility did him in. He wound up leaving his wife and their two Down syndrome children. At 35 years of age, the once great preacher died from cirrhosis of the liver in a rundown motel at the edge of Amarillo, Texas. His last job was selling used cars in the panhandle of Texas. I finished the story again, I finished my notes, and I started thinking about people who started the journey of faith pretty much the same time, some the same time as me. And now because of poor decisions of getting too close to the world, of settling down in the world, of perhaps relationships out of the will of God, And they end up like Bron Clifford or Templeton or or Lot. If you're headed that direction, get off that path. Get away from the people of Sodom that you're so close to and get close to the Abrams. Get close to those who, even though they have made mistakes and will make mistakes, they get back up. They stay in fellowship with the Lord. 
They stay in fellowship with those who are wanting to stay in fellowship with the Lord. And together, together, they defeat the enemy. We're so blessed to be able to share the Word of God with you on each new edition of The Living Word. Thanks for being a part of our valued listening audience. If you'd like to hear today's message from Genesis again, please visit ccfstpete.church. Just click on Sermons to be directed to our YouTube channel. In fact, you'll find a number of messages from Pastor Danny on that page, and we encourage you to subscribe. As we wrap up our time with you today, we'd like to take a moment and offer you an opportunity to partner with us here on The Living Word. Would you join with us in praying for the listeners of this program? During this time of uncertainty in our nation, prayer is a powerful tool to combat fear and to promote peace in Jesus. Please pray that each person that hears these messages from the life of Jesus are touched and changed by His love. Please pray also for us. We want to continue following God's plan for this program no matter where He asks us to go. Would you also ask the Lord about contributing financially to the Living Word? If you feel led to give, visit our website at ccfstpete.church and click on the online giving guide under Forms. Any and all amounts are greatly appreciated and will be used to share the good news of Jesus' love for the world. Thanks for praying about this, and thanks for being a part of our time studying Genesis on the Living Word.